0: Welcome to Gen Z Hoops, the Gen Z basketball, coaching, and sports business show. On this podcast, you'll learn from professional players, coaches, and executives from all over the world, and see the court in a brand new way. And now, joining you courtside, your Gen Z host, John Hartafillis.
1: Good morning, Coach Easton. How are you? Doing great. How about you, John? doing awesome, super excited to have you on. I remember when I got the message from you, I was so excited to talk to someone that's just done so much, whether it's in the coaching game with speaking, you've you really just inspired me preparing for this interview and watching what you've done. I'm um, really inspired. Me. So thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. I think the more opportunities that people have to find out maybe someone else's path or their experiences, I, I think it's great that there are platforms like this that are willing to share that information. So I'll just kind of react to to anything you throw at me and hopefully I can do some good for your people
1: you're, you're really good at that so I'm, I'm really I'm positive that you will uh, do a really good job at that um just to start off just to kind of give people an idea about your, your upbringing and what's kind of wh- how you've gotten to where you are can you kind of give us a walkthrough on kind of your maybe your college days right after college kind of how you got into into basketball loving falling in love with the game and, and learning through all these mentors the values that have brought you here Yeah, well,
0: there's so many things involved in that particular question. I I think the first thing uh, that comes
1: front of mind is that
0: mentors and learning can come from people beyond just those you know. So I encourage people that are listening to, to read more, to um, go and research uh, YouTubes on people that have maybe given talks in areas that are important to you. Uh, but for me, my upbringing was simply, I grew up in South Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia, went to the University of Richmond in Virginia to college, was able to get a scholarship to the University of Richmond, was able to compete, uh, obviously, at the collegiate level And then had a good career there, learned a lot about myself, and then uh, had an opportunity to get into coaching at the University of Richmond in a position of what they called back then, a graduate coach, where you actually had to go to grad school. So I thought, oh man, I thought I was done learning in the classroom, but in order to get into something that I loved, I had to become a graduate assistant. So I was able to do that. It allowed me to do something that I was very passionate about, and that was Help a player get to a level that maybe they didn't believe they could get to or thought it was too much work and they, they didn't want to push themselves to get to that level. So uh, that just parlayed into my personal philosophy of just be as good as you can be at where you are. The doing it right gods will take care of you. Right. So uh, in a really fast nutshell, that's my life.
1: It's awesome to think about that and, and, and all those, the values that you learned through all those different steps. These are experiences, obviously, that, that changed you and helped you change so many other lives. I'm curious, this is, this is kind of a strong question to start off with. But I'm curious, how do you define success through all these different avenues, all these different things? It's, it's a question that you meet, people get asked in job interviews all the time. I'm curious to see what, through all your experience, you, you think of that question.
0: Well, I, I think success is personal to, to who you are and your path in life. But to me, in its essence, I think we all have a capability gap. Maybe the things that we have accomplished to our point this point in our lives versus the things that that what that that are inside of us that that we are capable of still achieving. And as we fill that capability gap, that to me is 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 becoming successful because it's getting the most out of yourself. I have a personal philosophy that I lived with for for quite some time. And and it goes like this. Uh, There's more inside each of us. Our job is to figure out how to pull that out of ourselves. So it's not so much maybe what I accomplished as a high school and college player, but that there was still more to accomplish because I was capable of more. So I I think uh, to me, it's filling and reaching that capability gap.
1: And then you always talk about, I, I've so, I read so many quotes of you, so many influential quotes talking about the value of truth and, and why that's so important to you and why it's so important to effectively communicate and portray that message and, and be really honest with, when, when talking to a player, a coworker, whoever it might be. Um, what's the value of that word to you and, and, why, and how does it dictate how, how you live your life?
0: Well, if we go back to the last question about, you know, how do you become successful? I think like, how can you be the best you can be if you don't know the truth about what you're doing? Maybe it's the things you're doing well and and you keep doing those. Or it's the things that you know or someone has told you you're not doing quite as well. Well, improve on those things. But the only way to hear that and get to that level is to hear the truth. So for me, if everyone listening wants to become who they say they want to become, and if everyone listening wants to get to the level they say they, they want to get to, the only way to get there is to have some truth tellers in your life and then hopefully to develop what I call a, a truth audit mentality. That's your ability to sit down with yourself. As I told you before we started, I'm in a hotel room. So if you hear noises or, or uh, the, the fire alarm goes off, I can't control that. But um, the only way to really get there is to sit down with yourself, maybe in a quiet place and just reflect, You know, what am I doing well? What am I not doing well? And if you feel you can't do that with yourself, then, like I said, get others to do that for you and with you. But the truth is just so essential.
1: Definitely. And especially whether it's your days coaching in college or days coaching in the NBA, being honest and truthful with your players was so important. For, for example, taking it back to your time with the Celtics with, with all these great players, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, how important was it for you in a, in a locker room that was with so many different personalities? Obviously, you all came together to win a championship in 2008. How important was being truthful there? And what would have happened maybe if that wasn't the case?
0: Well, here's the interesting thing about the best players in sports and also the best, you know, now I'm doing a lot of speaking to companies all over the world. I have a chance to actually sit down with CEOs or or vice presidents. And what you find out, which obviously that means they're the best in, in their industry. So what you find out from the best is that they demand the truth. They don't run away from it. Usually average people run away from the truth. But successful people actually love it and demand it from from those that are around them. So, and what you find out about the NBA, this is the fun part of the NBA, it's a truth league. Like, you can't lie your way into the NBA. What you did in college, or if you're, you know, a young kid, maybe what you did in high school, that's the truth of who you are. And then we would always try and figure out, okay, if we get them, this, yes, this is who they are. But what can they can be? It it gets back to what we talked about earlier, that capability gap, right? Oftentimes in the NBA now, you're drafting on potential, uh, not so much what that person is today. The NBA really, uh, it's truth every day. And you have to learn how to tell hard truths and also accept them. But as I've studied successful people, I found out that one of the characteristics is they will accept And as I said, they will demand that the truth about their productivity uh, be told.
1: Of course, and that really brings to mind a a strong lesson of accountability, which is something that whether it's um, what what I'm coaching at Xavier High School and what we try to stress to our players, obviously at the next level, accountability is maybe the basis of who you are and whether or not you can even, if you make a mistake on your road to success, if you're going to grow from it. Um, So what does that accountability look like and, and where have you kind of seen it really change lives accountability, first off to me, is owning
0: up to your mistakes, your failures, and your words. So, and the word that also I think has to be in the same sentence with the word accountability is uh, responsibility. And responsibility is doing your job. Do your job. If your job is to be a point guard who passes the ball, then be the best at being a point guard who passes the ball. If your job is as a parent, one of your responsibilities is you do have to change diapers, right? Even though you don't want to, that's a responsibility of being a parent. You have to have hard, you know, truthful conversations with your children. That's a responsibility of being a parent. You have to be responsible, but at the same time, accountable. And accountability really is uh, another way of saying to your teammates, hey, I'm going to come in and strive to be the best that I can be, And to live up to my personal standards and the standards that the team has put on me and us each and every day, each and every practice, each and every game. And I commit to you that if I'm not doing that, I will be willing to own up to that and then take that next course of action, which is correcting it. But... I'm going to need the truth to be told to me because sometimes I may not see it. And if I don't see it, then I I can't hold myself accountable. So if you point it out, then I'll own up to it and boom, then we're off to the races.
1: It's, it's so important to to get off to the races and, and be on the same page to do that. Um, obviously with that first championship team, it was very difficult. A lot of teams fail in one. You know, when, when you when you put all that talent together, a lot of teams that we've seen recently haven't been able to get it done in the first year of that happening. Um, and then we can go down the line of all these teams that are that are, have these big threes that just don't work out. Uh, you guys are able to get it done, and I'm I'm curious, what did the preparation going into that season look like to make sure that uh, you were there before you were there? Uh, well,
0: we had the big three. But what all the guys on the team would tell you is we had the right 15, right? Which was every bit as important as having the, the, the big three. So uh, by that, I mean, there was a fit there and we purposely went out and tried to fit that team based on the gaps that we felt we would have. If we had this mixture of players, what would our gaps be? Right. So for us, the biggest part of the big three was that they, they were the example leaders, And we also caught them at the right time in their careers. They, you know, when you're, when you're going into the league, into the NBA, first going into the NBA, so much of it, and rightfully so, has to be a little bit about you. Like, how can I stay in the league? How can I get my next contract? How can I provide for my family, et cetera? So there is a part of a me mentality, especially early on in a career, but with the Kevin Garnetts and the Paul Pierces and the Ray Allens and the Jane Poseys, James Poseys, they already had their cars. They already had their house. They already had their vacation house. They already had their, their, uh, their bling, right? The only thing they didn't have and that their money could buy was an NBA championship. We'll take that back. James did because he got one when he was with Miami. And actually James Posey was crucial to us winning the title because he was the only one who had done it as a player outside of Danny Ainge, who was then our general manager, but on the team. So James really was the only one who knew what it truly took. All the rest of us thought we knew, we read about it, we watched it on interviews, but we didn't know for sure. And James put in uh, you know, that daily work ethic mentality that you need to get to that level of, of uh,
1: success. Thinking about players, everyone kind of gets caught up in that big three, right? I'm curious. When you brought that up, it posed a question for me about Kendrick Perkins. Everyone kind of knows him now as the guy on TV that that is hard on players and and kind of that narrative. And especially younger people don't really remember on back when he played. And you look at the stats and you see that he didn't score a lot. And you might not you might think that he wasn't a very good player. But he was. He did all the dirty work for you guys, and he played his role to perfection on that championship team.
0: Yeah, I think if you if you talk about Perk, a lot of people will describe him, John, the way you just did. He did a lot of the dirty work. But what like our coaching staff and his teammates would tell you, uh, they probably wouldn't use that term. They would say he did all the winning work. He did all the things that actually needed to be done that go into winning. And uh, yes, uh, I I guess Perk is hard on people. I don't know. But he was hard on himself too. Each of his teammates were hard on each other. That's the truth part. But the truth, uh, let me get back to that. The truth isn't always a negative thing. Truth can be, uh, hey, you're doing an unbelievable job at this. Keep doing that. Or, hey, Perk, teach teach our rookie what it takes to be a, a a true defender in this league at the five at the center position. The truths can be very positive as well. As a matter of fact, the biggest truth I think that Doc stated to any of our players that particular year we won it was that the four words he said to Rajon Rondo at one point in front of the whole team in a team meeting. He said, I believe in you. Maybe the four most powerful words a leader can say, a coach can say to those who are Uh, underneath them. Because if you know, the leader believes in you, wow, that just fills you up with so much belief in yourself. And it gets you over the hump of maybe thinking, I can do this, instead of, I'm not sure if I can do this. Or worse yet, I can't do this, right. So, you know, Perk was such a valuable player, but so too was Leon Poe. So too was uh, JP Brown, uh, PJ Brown, rather so too was Sam Cassell. Sam brought us just this uh, this attitude of uh, we ain't losing, right? And this attitude, I don't care how hard it is, I'll make a play. You know, we had Eddie House who brought to us incredible shooting off of the bench. We had Rajon Rondo, who when Rondo was on the top of his game, he was terrific uh, for, for us. Actually, single-handedly won game six, which caused, which allowed us to win the the title in 2008. So that's why I say it's, um, it really, we never looked at it as the big three, only the outside world did. We looked at it as, as the right 15.
1: Thinking about how the truth can sometimes be positive. One thing I, I, that made me think of is that like when Ray Allen, um, is at a shooting slump, for example, he's obviously one of the most, probably the most focused individual NBA history in terms of repetition and, and really focusing on his craft. How would the rest of the team kind of come together and, and raise someone up with, with the truth of saying, you're better. Like you, you, you are the all time leader in three pointers made. You could do this. Um, what, did, what did that kind of look like?
0: You know, sometimes it's just the simple statements that are the, the most powerful.
1: You know, Ray might have
0: missed four or five in a row. And Doc might say to him, Ray, if you don't take the sixth shot, I'm taking you out of the game. Right. Usually get taken out of the game for something negative you do. So what Doc was really saying to him was, I don't care that you miss five or six. Shoot the seventh one because we believe in you. And we know that law of percentages at some point, you're gonna get hot. Other statements that the team, his teammates might've made to him, which are also equally powerful is, are things like do what you do, or that's what you do, or keep shooting Ray, right? And it might even be Rondo purposely coming down the next two or three possessions and making sure he penetrated to Ray's side. So that maybe Ray's guy would come off him and then boom, Rhonda was, was going to hit him for a shot, right? An open shot. That's the other thing about the pros that you find out. They actually do know what's going on, especially the good teams and the knowledgeable players, they do know what's going on and they do know how to get somebody back into their strength. But the other thing we asked our guys to do is, is we used to say this, if what you do well, isn't going well, what else can you do? Well, meaning don't be a one hit wonder. So for Ray, he had this ability for like, even though people might say he wasn't a great defender, uh, he had this ability for four to six straight possessions of locking in maybe to a Kobe Bryant and making it really difficult, say uh, when we were playing them in the the finals, making it really difficult to get high quality open shots. So that was an, an extra dimension that Ray brought above and beyond his shooting
1: it's so important to have that and thinking about some of the the we we'll, could we'll take these guys over the top right you're not doing well in one thing but you have the mental edge to to refocus and say okay my shots not falling, I could still number one, take more shots because I, I have confidence in myself. And number two, I can lock into the defensive end. For other guys, it's rebounding. For other guys, it's it's making sure to, to maybe be, be vocal and get your teammates more involved. Um, I'm curious when it comes to, everyone kind of always talks about the intensity of Kevin Garnett. And some people maybe the, that are a little, maybe more casual fans, maybe don't understand how important that was to a team success. They might see it as more of a negative when in, in, in reality, it was such a driving force for a, for a team like the Celtics team to win that championship. And it all kind of captivated with the whole anything is possible celebration. It was passion. It was just oozing uncontrollable passion. Um, what what did that kind of look like for him? And how was it like as a, as a coaching staff, kind of making sure that all of that was positive and built the rest of the team up?
0: Yeah. Well, well, first off, Kevin was probably the hardest person on himself of anyone I've ever been around. <clears throat> so sometimes the intensity was directed at a, at himself and we had a, Kind of tell him the same thing that that we just talked about with Ray. Kevin, just be who you are, right? Don't, don't overthink it. So for Kevin, the intensity really was tremendously more positive intensity than any yelling. You know, sometimes Kevin might say a word that you don't say on Sunday, right? So that intensity was what made Kevin Garnett, Kevin Garnett, right? He had a lock into that personal mindset that he needed to be his best out there. And uh, it's just like anyone, each and every day, if we can lock in to who we are when we are at our best, that's an important trait to be able to bring into an office building, right? To be able to bring into a locker room, to be able to bring in uh, to the game floor on game night. And Kevin had that unique ability. When you're a true team, you actually know who the best of someone is, what it looks like, what it sounds like. And you're willing to accept that, you know, like I said, we were a true team. So our guys were willing to accept that intensity and uh, it actually rubbed off and made a few of our players even more intense than they had been or get their intensity level up to what it needed to be to become the winner
1: and, and winners that they did become and it, it's 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 so incredible thinking about the, that that team we call it a championship team but there's so many championship the the mindset behind that and and the, and the players that built that up the 15 players that built that up um is incredible to think about transitioning over to uh, to agree with the clippers um i was thinking of all this stuff all these values of, of truth especially with, with doc that's such a big part of who he is and, and who the, the coaching staff around him is in, in the light of of uh, the incident with donald sterling in 2014 what did that look like in terms of of really building the team back up and, and showing everyone that the coaching stuff that was still there and the organization that was still there was going to be incredibly truthful? And how did that kind of really bring that team closer together instead of drifting them apart?
0: What happened there is it's the true definition of the fact that adversity can bring you closer together and adversity reveals true character. Those two things were in play, at least my observation of them, that year through the Donald Sterling situation. What that whole situation allowed us to do was refocus on who we were, and what we wanted to do, and then the intent of what we wanted to do. So our guys all decided that uh, it was going to be a one-voice situation, and that voice was going to be Doc Rivers, the coach. Then that freed up our players to concentrate on playing, even though that was difficult for them, because that was an international situation people can go back and YouTube uh, at the time, Barack Obama, president Obama was overseas. And one of the very first questions he got was what is your reaction to what happened back home? Some of the racial inequalities that were, were brought out with how Donald Sterling does things right. That shows you how important a time that was and how uh, international that particular situation was. So for our guys, even though we were close, it brought them a little closer together and it made them think back to, to you know, why are we doing what we're doing? And uh, once they decided, this is why we're doing what we're doing, then they decided, let's be the best at that. So as you recall, that first game, they wanted to do, to do something so that the public knew that, look, this isn't right. And they debated back and forth amongst themselves, what should we do? They were getting suggestions from everywhere But like Doc said, the most important thing we can do is do what's right for us. It was a tough time, but it was an educational time.
1: Thinking about how positive values could kind of build that team and bring it closer together after um, everything that happened is is incredible because that's exactly what all these values that you always um, speak about and, and try, to, try to spread those positive values all can kind of do. Um, so at, while, while you were with those Clippers, um, you also a little while later transitioned into being the VP of Basketball Operations, which um, with your coaching experience, that hadn't been something that you'd really looked into. What was that transition like for you in, in, in take, going to that career path and kind of bringing those values from the sideline up into the front office?
0: Yeah, well, it was a unique time that called for a unique move, I guess, because it's not like I ever would be dreaming about becoming a, a, an executive for an NBA team, because I loved coaching. But it happened during that transition period from Donald Sterling uh, to Steve Ballmer, because there was a void there. When Doc and I met, he kind of just, we talked out like, hey, I need somebody in that chair right now who, because the VP got let go too, right, during that Sterling situation. So I need somebody in there who can kind of drive the culture that I want. And you've been with me the longest, myself and Armand Hill had been with Doc since the beginning in Boston, but I think you get it. So I'd like for you to sit in that chair for one, maybe two years. And then once we get it going, or we balance some things with our, our ownership, then you come back to coaching. So I did it for that reason. When you're with a sports team, everybody thinks, well, when you're coaching players, it's different than when you're being an executive and say, in my case, the vice president. And it really is not because coaching is leading and leading is coaching. You have to be able to do both when you're say up at the higher levels of the, of the hierarchy. So for me, it was just transferring the things that were important to get the team to function properly on the basketball court. And now making sure that we were all going in the same direction and functioning properly and executing our roles. In the offices on the carpets right of the office building so that's just that's kind of what i did
1: it's interesting to think about about that that, that transition period and then going into what you're doing now as a speaker did you ever speak before the, the last few years or was this something that you kind of from the coaching in front office a lifestyle you've been living for so long um it was kind of the next chapter for you
0: yeah well i always did clinics when i was coaching for you know forever so I am very comfortable getting up in front of large groups. So I have no problem there. Uh, the key becomes, you better have good content or you'll never be back in front of large groups. Right? So, so, but that was the fun challenge for me to keep coming up with, with good content uh, and meaningful content. So the year we it in 2008, that summer, I had already been doing like a bunch of clinics, right? In my college years and, and, and all that coaching. So, Uh, I got a call from someone in the corporate world saying, hey, do you think you could come over and talk to our our sales team about what it took to be the best in your industry? So I thought about it a little bit, got back to them the next day and said, yeah, I'd be willing to do that. And I titled that first talk, The DNA of a Champion. What goes on to build a championship level team? So like when I speak in clinics or used to speak, I don't do as many now because it's almost all sports teams and corporate teams. I used to get notes afterwards, real notes back in the day, but obviously emails the last X amount of years saying, hey, love, appreciate what you did, love what you you said, blah, blah, blah. So I I went ahead and did this for the company and I got four or five emails from people who were in the audience. Well, I knew coming off the stage that I enjoyed it, but that's only half of a talk. You as a speaker may have enjoyed it, the audience listening may have thought you sucked. I don't ever want to hear you again. Don't please don't bring him back ever, right? Well, the complete opposite happened. People loved it. And I thought to myself, wow, maybe all of the lessons I've learned and the observations I've made and uh, the content that I have can help people outside the sports world. So then I started to do two two each and every off season, because that's all my calendar would allow. Because the one thing about the NBA is when you're an assistant coach, it's year round because you're working players out, right? There's no time off, really. So I started to do that and enjoyed that. Then I knew as I was getting towards the end of my coaching career that that is what I wanted to do. I ended up you know, sitting down with Doc and saying, hey, I, I, I think it's time. And I had told Doc when I got hired, I said, uh, I'm going to guarantee you one thing. And he said, what's that? And I said, you'll never have to fire me because I will know prior to that time whether I'm still good enough for, for this team and this organization. So don't worry about that. And I knew at that time it was time for somebody else to take my seat. I wanted somebody else younger than me to have the opportunity to sit in those seats that I sat in for 35 years and enjoy it just the way I did. So even though people thought I was crazy, I decided to do it. And now it's gotten to the point where probably doing 70 plus talks a year. So it's been fun.
1: Incredible thinking about that, that transition and obviously doing what you love to do and, and spreading the message that, that you've been living, through the, your 35 years you've been coaching, but even your, your entire life. Um, I'm curious about the book you wrote, uh, Why the Best are the Best, 25 Powerful Words that Impact, Inspire, and Define Champions. What kind of went into the process of writing that book? It, it, it obviously is something that, that's first on my list um, uh, to start to start reading. Um, what, did that, what did that look like for you?
0: I had thought about doing it for a while and I kept talking about it around the house you know, and, and that my son and my wife would just roll their eyes. Oh, yeah, here, here's dad again, talking about writing a book that actually no ink has been used on it yet, even to the point where I created a cover one day. And I went in and showed it to my wife. And she said, you know, Kev, I'm not sure if you've read any books lately. But to be called a book, you actually have to have content inside the covers. So I thought, wow, that's a first of all, I thought, that's pretty good. Secondly, I thought, man, like punch. So that was my first year out of coaching, I think, but I was still doing consulting work for the Clippers and for Doc. So part of my consulting agreement was I had to be around the team for one week each month, right? So I could really observe it up close and personal. So I chose uh, one of the months that one of the weeks I chose was an Eastern uh, road swing. I think it was New York, Brooklyn, maybe Washington and Charlotte. So for that four day four games in, in seven nights trip, when you're an assistant coach, you're doing stuff all the time. When you're a consultant, you're not, there's a lot of part of your day where you're free when you're with the team. So I just sat down in the lobby of each hotel we were in and just started pecking away. And before I knew it in about a 10 day period, I had probably 90% of the book written first draft, you see, because I had had written it for 35 years right, all that stuff going on in my head. So then the process, after I had the original manuscript, the tough part was to, I wanted to simplify it so that the concepts, the routines, the habits, the strategies that the best of the best used to become the best of the best, that they were transferable to the reader. And not only transferable, but that they were immediately insertable to the lives, careers, and jobs that those readers had. So that was the process, and and the biggest thing was I actually just wanted to challenge myself to see if I could do it. So that checked that one off.
1: That's a big uh, bucket list item to to check off, and it's something obviously that I would imagine um was really rewarding for you finally seeing the publication process and all that stuff take off. and and now you have your own book. I mean it's, of course, um, we got a really cool name, incredibly useful, um, and, and so direct in, in its purpose of really spreading that message. One of the things that I saw with you speaking thing is the whole what's the challenge series and a lot of the work you're doing with these sports teams and, and the consulting work you're doing now. Um, what, did, what does that look like and, and where, do you, where do you see that going?
0: Well, the challenge series came into my head uh, at the early stages of the pandemic because I knew coaches were not able to get face-to-face with their teams. And at that particular time, they had no idea when or even if they could. And then I, I started to think that it's happening in all sports. So I sat down and I said, okay, what have I learned that can apply to all sports? Because how to execute a crossover dribble dribble, has no impact on a uh, female volleyball player, right? The college or professional football player doesn't really care either. So what could what could uh, cross over to all sports and all athletes? And then I started to think most athletes do want to become as good as they possibly are capable of becoming. So what challenges are all the, all the players that I was around, what do they put on themselves each and every day, each and every practice, each and every month, each of every year of their careers? What challenges did they personally put on themselves to get to that level? And then I came up with the, with the 16 challenges, I think it is. Um, and uh, uh, then the way I, I work out the challenge series is I put the challenge in front of the person, just like on a zoom, it's, it's a virtual challenge series. Uh, they can do it over 16 weeks or they can put it all into one week, however they want to do it. So I present the challenge. Like we already talked about one of them, the challenge of the truth. Like that's a hard challenge. Cause a lot of people aren't able, aren't willing to accept that challenge. Then I would break down what that challenge means. Then I would incorporate a story about an athlete that lives this challenge each and every day, so that the athlete listening to it they understood what that challenge was. They saw that someone else that they may have seen or looked up to did this when they were younger, and that's why they had a chance to get to where they are. So that's the that's the challenge series, and it's it, it's taken off and um, you know, being used by by teams in all sports, really.
1: Thinking about how these, especially the way you broke it down. Thank you so much because the, the understanding of the thought process that goes through, kind of how you set up all these, the, the way that you're able to spread these values is is incredible. And and Mr. Eason, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on today because this was in terms of there's so many notes I took. I think the the one of the biggest things that my eyes kind of popped out was when you're talking about Kendrick Perkins and how he did the winning work, not the dirty work. That's a phrase that I wrote down and I'm gonna be using that with my players because everyone, all coaches ever say dirty work, but that it doesn't do it justice. The work isn't dirty, it's 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 winning. Um, so so lessons like that, I'm definitely gonna take with me and and I can't wait to see all these positive values um, lead to obviously championship level results and, and I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much.
0: You no, know, the pleasure is mine, John. Keep it up because you're providing a great uh, uh, service and platform for, for a lot of people out there. So all the best. for listening to gen z hoops make sure to follow like and subscribe on instagram linkedin and all major social media platforms at gen z hoops you can tune in and subscribe on apple podcasts spotify youtube and every other podcast platform on the planet get ready for the next episode